Welcome to Next, brought to you by Content Labs. I'm Zelina Khan, your host, and I'm so excited to bring you season four with a brand new set of guests to educate, motivate, and hopefully inspire you in and out of the workplace. As the amount of data in today's world continues to grow, technology adoption in the legal industry, especially with the increase of AI, becomes more important. To talk with us about this, we have Dan Myers, President of Consulting at Transperfect Legal Solutions. We examine long-term impacts, the dilemmas of using legal technology, including algorithmic management, say that 10 times fast, and explore the future of the legal profession in the big data world. Hope you enjoy this one, I did. Hi everyone, welcome to Next. This episode, we are joined by Dan Myers, uh, President of Consulting at Transperfect Legal Solutions. And today, we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence in the legal space. We're going to talk about some of the good, the bad, and a little bit, or maybe a lot of all that's in between. Um, Hi, Dan. Hey, Zelina. How are you? Good, good, good. Um, Good. while we were prepping for this conversation, I was just thinking to myself, you know, the legal space doesn't really pop up when discussing artificial intelligence. So I think that's what makes this such a good conversation or what will make this such a good conversation. Can we just start with a little bit of you telling the listeners who you are and, you know, what you do at Transperfect? So as you said, I'm the president of the consulting division of Transperfect Legal Solutions, Transperfect Legal Solutions, or TLS as we call ourselves shorthand, is a global provider of uh, software solutions and service solutions for the legal industry. I've been in this role for a little over seven years. Um, I'm actually splitting my time between the Toronto office and the New York office. I'm from New York by background, but moved up to Toronto during COVID. Um, I was actually a client for many years before I joined the company. I was a litigation partner um, at the New York City office of one of the sort of AmLaw 100 law firms in the U.S. Um, by background, I was a commercial litigator, complex commercial litigation. But pretty early in my career, I started focusing on the intersection between technology and the practice of law. When I made partner at the firm, I actually launched the firm's e-discovery practice group, which is one of the prominent areas of of legal technology, a field called e-discovery, which we'll talk more about. But really, my practice grew into a consulting practice and and doing that from the platform of a national law firm wasn't making as much sense as it should have. And so moving to TransPerfect, which is truly global, very entrepreneurial, it's both a software provider and a service provider, just made a ton of sense for me. And it's been seven really good, interesting, exciting years uh, since I joined the company. I think in general, it's been a very interesting seven years, just when you think about how the legal industry has evolved and then with artificial intelligence playing a role in that. So um, why don't we jump into the conversation? What are some trends happening right now with technology in the legal space? It's very like cause and effect. The cause is the world we live in today is the big data world, right? Which not only means that businesses are generating more data than ever before, which is certainly true, but also a greater diversity of data. You know, it used to be that when businesses got into litigation, the um, and we're talking about you know 
commercial civil litigation, one business suing another, the evidence that the lawyers would rely upon to prove their clients are in the right were emails, uh, Word documents, Excels, sort of traditional data sources. But today, not only are those traditional sources larger in volume than ever, I mean, you know, the ability to send emails from planes, trains, automobiles, underground, et cetera, has just um, really increased the volume of email traffic in a given day. But on top of that, you've got text messages, other phone data like WhatsApp messages, um, cloud collaboration platforms, Slack, Teams, um, structured databases. There's just so much more digital information than there used to be, and there's such an incredible variety of it that it made it really hard for lawyers to do their jobs in a, in a cost-effective way, even a, in an affordable way. And if you think about it, if you're a litigator and you're looking for, through your client's documents, for the ones that support your case, or if you're a transactional lawyer and you're doing due diligence on an M&A deal and you're looking for the key documents you need to analyze, you spend so much time searching through this giant haystack of information that by the time you actually find the needles that you care about, you almost don't have enough time to analyze those needles. And so that big data trend really led directly to the advent of legal tech and AI, which are really, you know, at the end of the day, tools to more quickly separate the digital wheat from the chaff so that the lawyers can find the needles or at least be presented with a much smaller haystack so that they then can find the needles and do the I um. I'm overwhelmed. As someone who works in content, I am overwhelmed by the amount of content that we can not only produce, but that we can also save, right? So like, even if you think about email, I remember, you know, when I first started like my first corporate job, you know, that your email, your inbox is only so big, right? So you were forced to actually cull your own data. Um, but now, the clouds are only getting bigger, right? So people can store more and more and more information. So the thought of even any sort of litigation having to go through a terabyte or two terabytes or even a hundred terabytes of data is overwhelming. <laughs> so um, I remember when we started, we were, you know, talking about some, you know, TLS branding and marketing of our own products and just you know, talking to you about like culling data and what that means and just how efficient that could be. I'm like, oh my God, everybody needs this. I mean, I don't see any law firm that could do their job or any in-house counsel that couldn't do their job without incorporating some sort of technology into their day-to-day. -day. It's true. It's 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 really a challenge. And listen, I go to a client meeting, I'm paying attention to the client for an hour. I get out of the meeting and I look at my phone. And in that hour, Generally speaking, I'll, I'll tend to get about 75 to 100 emails in that hour that I now need to sort through. But now, not only do I have those, I've got 10 text messages and 25 Teams chats, all of which are information I need to go through just for an operational standpoint to do my job. Now you go, we've got a litigation and the litigation concerns events that occurred between January 1st and June 15th, 
and there's 10 different people involved at our company, you've got a mountain of emails and text messages and digital information to go through. But fortunately, and it's just not doable in a brute force kind of way. You can't just throw an army of lawyers at this mountain of documents and still expect to do your job in a way that's not cost prohibitive for your client. But fortunately, there's really good tech available now. And the technology, after a little bit of training, um, will, through the use of AI, help you find the relevant documents much, much faster. And you're right, Selena, there's not a project we do that we don't recommend to clients to use the technology. And some are scared of it, and we can talk about those types of issues and how to overcome them. But it's always a good idea to use tech to help streamline the process of going through whatever remains of the haystack to find the needles. So we're talking about how technology, AI can help, but I would be remiss if we don't jump into the correlation of jobs and AI in the legal space, right? So, you know, AI is common, automation is common um, with within the legal industry. So obviously with contract automation, digital contracts, sharing through the cloud, why do you think it's so important to adopt this type of lifestyle, right? Like aside from what we talked about saving time, I mean, you know, there's a greater adoption of these tools. So why is that so important? I, I think it's really important to talk about and, and ultimately overcome fears over technology and automation and, and AI taking away jobs. And the truth of the matter is that, that that's a concern in the legal industry. There's, there's no doubt about it. People have that concern. But it's true across all industries. All industries are being, I won't use the word disrupted, I'll say improved through the use of technology in AI. Some are being fully disrupted, some are just being improved. It's <laughs> a good word. And in all of those industries, there's this great fear of job loss, right? I really think that that fear, it's a natural fear, it's a common sense fear, but I feel like it fails to appreciate the depth of human innovation and creativity and entrepreneurship. I really believe that the entrepreneurial spirit of humans means that while there might be job impacts in the short term, in the really in the medium to long term, these, these tools, these innovations create more jobs. ATM machines, they were invented in like the 70s, but they didn't become prominent at, at banks until the 90s. And when that was happening, there was real fear by bank tellers they were being replaced by machines. And that makes sense. It's common sense. In fact, each individual branch of a bank did require, on average, 40% less tellers as a result of ATM machines. So while each individual branch required less tellers, you might think, okay, so that 40% that aren't required anymore, they're unemployed. The truth of the matter is actually the opposite, and it's counterintuitive. But what happened, and we can look back and historically, this is, this is a fact at this point in time, because each individual bank branch required less tellers, the branches were less expensive to run. To operate a bank branch was a lot less expensive. In turn, banks, you know, wanting to capture a larger share of the market, were able to open more branches. Each additional branch now required maybe not 100% of the tellers they used to have, but 60% of the tellers they used to have. 
So the 40% from one branch that are let go, they move on to the next branch and they're actually in higher demand. The, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has tracked the number of teller jobs over time. And it's actually increased as a result of the advent of ATM machines. Um, and it's actually outpaced the growth of the general labor force over time. And if you think about it like this, um, that also allows for job advancement too, right? Because these tellers can then, you know, grow into supervisors or, you know, the, those one-on-one -on -one consultants at the bank, they can then advance their career, right, as well. And, you know, then in turn, the actual people that are actually going to the bank and need one-on-one -on -one advice or, you know, better customer service, they can provide that. So it's definitely way larger than just a lack of bank dollars. That's right. And, and, and the other aspect to that is it's actually improved the um, sophistication of the tasks that yeah. a teller works on. So you're not just, okay, you want to withdraw money, fill out the slip, process the slip, hand you money. They're now doing more complex tasks like wire transfers and the like. And because they're now doing more complex tasks and because the bank is more profitable as a result of ATM machines, their wages go up. So there's not only more jobs for tellers and more potential for career growth, but there's also higher wages. It really is like the triple whammy of a good thing for tellers. There's another way to think about how advancements in technology and automation um, and AI impact a particular industry, which is how oftentimes it will result in the creation of brand new peripheral industries. And we're starting to see this right now with automated vehicles. Now you think about automated vehicles and what's the impact going to be on the job market. Your immediate reaction is, well, um, taxi drivers, rideshare drivers, um, parking attendants. Maybe they're all out of work because people don't need to take an Uber to get home at night because they had a couple of drinks. They can let their car drive them home. People don't need to park in this lot for two hours while they're in the museum, they can just tell their car to drive around and pick them back up in two hours. So you might think immediately common sense, just connecting two dots, this is gonna to lead to job loss. But then think about all of the peripheral uh, industries and service lines that are created by automated vehicles. Think about manufacturers, manufacturing the, the LIDAR, you know, radar equipment that actually these, these cars rely on. Think about more advanced infotainment systems for the car. And even, I think they call it smart glass, where the windows can actually be monitors or create an outdoor visual. So while in the narrowest sense, common sense will tell you it's going to reduce jobs, when you think about it more um, in a more complex and more of an ecosystem, it actually creates jobs. And a lot of these things you're seeing or we're talking about with ATMs and automated vehicles We've also seen in legal. Yeah. And, and just hearing how you apply it to other industries, I think that would automatically, right, dispel some of the fears. But why don't we talk about how, how, how is the legal industry? Like, how are they overcoming fears in general? Great question. And, you know, some of it's generational, right? And some of it's just educational. But, you know, let, let's look at a couple of examples. And, and I talked about e-discovery. E-discovery, for those that aren't familiar, 
is exactly in the context of a litigation, the process of going through the giant haystack of data and electronic documents that businesses create and winnowing it all down to the point where it's a much smaller haystack. And then the lawyers actually find the needles and then go and you know, argue on their client's behalf. Um, there was a real fear when e-discovery started, which is, you know, let's call it 15 years ago, more or less, that the people that were going to get put out of work at law firms, at in-house legal departments by the technology were paralegals because paralegals traditionally were dealing with and managing paper files, organizing files, filing files, creating binders of documents for the legal team, right? It's all paper-based traditionally. But what we've actually seen is, again, and all of this is supported by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, is that the demand for paralegal jobs has increased as the technology has increased. And in fact, when you look at e-discovery, many of the trailblazers in the e-discovery world were traditional paralegals who saw how their jobs were evolving because of technology. They leaned into it and they really led the charge and are some of the greatest e-discovery experts in the world today now refer to themselves as e-discovery professionals, but in that prior iteration of their career, they referred to themselves as parallel professionals, right? So you do see that happening in the legal sector. Um, I'll say that uh, overcoming fears is an educational process. It's, it's helping lawyers understand how the use of technology, it doesn't take hours away from them. It doesn't take jobs away from them. What it does is it enables them to spend more time doing the type of work that they want to be doing, that they were trained to do, which is legal analysis. Stop spending time searching for the documents you need to analyze and just analyze the documents you need to analyze and advise your clients based on that analysis. It frees lawyers and in particular junior associates that historically were the ones doing the document by document searching to have a more meaningful, substantive, challenging experience. They grow faster, just like yeah, I mean, the thought of, I mean, going through and doing like, you know, going through documents is one thing, but going through documents and like doing something that, uh, you know, an AI could help or like a, a culling machine could help uh, just sounds way more, you know, <laughs> better quality, quality of life. I mean, it, it is, it's a better quality of life. And listen, like law, law students come out of law school and they've spent the last three years being challenged with interesting fact patterns and doing legal analysis. That's what law school teaches you to do. And then suddenly they spend the first three years of their professional jobs that they're all excited about doing document review. It is boring. And it's part of the reason why- That's the word I wanted to use. I didn't want to use the word boring. (laughs) No, it is. Listen, I lived that life for years. It is as boring as can be. Um, But when you are doing document review based on what the AI engine told you, hey, these are the interesting documents. These are the ones to look at first. You're no longer bored because you're actually, your eyes are on interesting words and facts um, and you're doing legal analysis in your head as you review them. You know, the other thing about legal tech is it's resulted in peripheral entire fields and cottage industries, which further require the human 
lawyers and legal support personnel to drive. I mean, think about the number of virtual law firms there are today. There are so many virtual law Completely firms today, virtual? and as a result, it's less expensive to run a law firm. Oh. Yeah. Lawyers working from home, you know, using Teams to meet with their clients and, and the like. No office space, just virtual law firms. Yeah, um, I was I was thinking like the the formula you're you know you're talking about with using AI and using tech to succeed. It's it's almost like you know if you don't adopt this way as a firm, you're bound to fail. Well, I learned something new today. I never even thought about a virtual law firm before. Because I think, uh, you know, when I think about the legal industry or just law firms in general, I think about it in such a traditional sense, and I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. The other thing I'd say about um, overcoming fears, and, you know, listen, I, I have a lot of conversations with um, more experienced lawyers who have uh, less general comfort with technology, and they are a little bit worried that, you know, they have a business model at a law firm, and it, the business model is based on the billable hour. Technology streamlines what I'm doing too much. Am I still going to be profitable? You know, and I think that the, the easiest response to that is it is incredibly, incredibly rare that a lawyer working on a project ever gets to the point where they say, I have run down every angle, researched every issue. I am fully comfortable with all of my legal analysis as complete. And now I'm going to deliver my advice to the client. Almost all the time, there's not enough time or enough client budget to go down every little rabbit hole, right? When time is freed up and you no longer need to spend what can be 40, 50, 60% of your time searching for documents. And that's now freed up. It gives you more time to be able to do a more comprehensive and in turn better quality legal research, legal analysis, and advising your client. Um, and so the idea of freeing up time doesn't mean that suddenly that time is no longer built for. It's just back to what we said before. It's build it more quality experiences quality use of time. I also quality think about the quality of life for a lawyer, right? I remember... Um, Sorry, qu quality of life? What's <laughs> that for a lawyer? I know you gave me some homework. And, you know, when it comes to reading about algorithmic management, but I'm not even going to touch it. I will just let you talk about it and, and jump into other things when it comes to guidelines and dilemmas uh, with these technologies. Yeah. And, and, and I am by no means um, an AI ethicist in the sense of this, this is not my area of real strength. But what I will tell you at a high level is a couple of things. First and foremost, any time in legal or otherwise that an AI model is being trained to do X so that it can then go do X in an automated way on its own, how it is trained is reflected in everything it does in the future. So if it's trained, for example, and many of these tools are language-based tools, if it's trained on English-only documents, then it can only have English-only output in the future. If it's trained on um, data points that reflect only one socioeconomic class um, or any other category of people, then it can only provide reliable, accurate results for that category of future, 
people moving forward. So to have a true um, comprehensive, non-biased AI engine, which is incredibly important for law. Law has enough challenge with access to justice for underrepresented people. Lawyers, the, the legal industry, is governed by rules of professional responsibility. They are ethics rules. Um, one of the ethics rules says that lawyers need to be competent about what they're doing. And traditionally, that was largely interpreted to mean things like, if I'm a wonderful IP lawyer, I can tell you everything about IP law in the world, and then someone wants to engage me to represent them in divorce proceedings, which I've never done before, I shouldn't be taking on that engagement because I'm not competent in that area of law, right? That makes sense. But it also means, and, and the folks that publish these rules of professional responsibility have clarified, it also means that you're competent in the things that you do and the tools that you use as a lawyer, including specifically a requirement that lawyers be competent in technology if they're going to use technology. So lawyers have to do continuing legal education or CLE. So in New York, for example, you need to do, I don't remember if it's 24 or 36 hours of CLE, so continuing education every two years, okay? Now many states have said you no longer have to do 24, you have to do 27 every two years with three hours focused on technology and the law. So Florida has done it. I think North Carolina has done it. Um, New York has done it with respect to cybersecurity technology in particular. Um, and it's really starting to spread. So there's a real realization that legal technology is just the reality of practicing law today and that your duty to be competent in general as a practicing lawyer extends to competence in the use of the technology that you're relying on, which makes sense. But it's nice to see it in writing and it's nice to see it formally recognized and required. Yeah, I think uh, being having the the education and using things responsibly is super important. I mean, especially when you think about uh, how legal decisions, right, or, you know, verdicts and things like that, verdicts, but, you know, decisions in any sort of case um, can impact a person, a company, uh, things like that. I just got another question that came to mind. Where do you think technology would never fit or not fit um, in the legal industry? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think for me, the biggest area, not only of technological limitation, but also I think of the limitation of a virtual mm -hmm. interaction um, is when it comes to witness interviews. Right, because you're oftentimes as a lawyer, and, and when I say witness interviews, I don't mean necessarily the witness who's accusing your client of doing something, but also when you're interviewing your client's own witnesses to understand what happened, what really happened here. Do we have an actual case or a defense if you're on the other side? Who do I want to present to the judge and jury? Right, who who comes across as really credible? I think a lot of that process is not only about um, properly hearing and interpreting the words that are being spoken, but also the things that aren't being said, the body language, the yeah. eye contact. I don't know that AI will ever be that yeah. smart. So why don't we uh, 
shift to maybe some of the technologies that are being offered to our clients right now. Um, obviously, you know a lot about this stuff and you've been working here and um, it'd be great to just talk about how we're using technology and AI in the legal industry. Absolutely. So there's a couple of categories of tools that uh, some of which we've created our own, some of which we license third-party tools, but frank- frankly, we try hard to be technology agnostic. We just want the most appropriate technology for the project to be brought to the client. Um, so uh, a category called Technology Assisted Review, or TAR, T-A-R for short, um, is one of those tools that we believe should be used on every project. And what TAR does at the end of the day, and I think the simplest way to to think about it is it's again a way to take a large haystack and make it really small before the lawyers start digging in and looking at documents. The way you do that is let's say you've got 100,000 documents or a million documents or 100 million documents that are initially part of the haystack. You take a small sample of those. I'm talking about a couple of hundred documents. You have a subject matter expert. Usually that's someone at the client who knows the legal issues, who knows the underlying facts. And they look at those couple of hundred documents and they're simply um, annotating them as responsive or relevant or not relevant. So it's a binary decision. Relevant, not relevant, relevant, not relevant. And in the background, the AI algorithm is looking at the content of those documents, what words and phrases are being used. And the tool, the the AI tool TAR, will start to see patterns of language coming up over and over again in the documents that were marked relevant and patterns of language coming up over and over again in the documents that were marked not relevant. And then you take that AI engine and you point it to that haystack of 10 or 100 or a million documents, whatever the volume is, and it will look at the content of those documents for the same patterns it's already found. And it'll give them a grade from you know, one to 100, let's say, with 100 being, wow, this is almost certainly a relevant document. It's got a lot of content that matches the patterns of relevance. And a zero being, this is almost certainly a not relevant document. It has no patterns of relevance, and lots of patterns of not relevance. And so you sort all those documents based on their score and start feeding from the top of the pile to the lawyers. They're getting the most relevant documents in their hands faster so that they can do a better job advising their clients early on rather than, I mean, for me, back when I was practicing and this was before TAR was as advanced as it is today, sometimes six months into reviewing documents, you start coming across documents that totally change your perception of the case. You're learning new facts. Suddenly you thought the client had a really good position and now you're seeing they're in a really bad position or vice versa. And you just think about how you would have advised the client differently six months ago. And what TAR does is it gives you those most relevant documents much earlier on, which not only streamlines the whole process, but empowers lawyers to advise their clients early. So that's a, that's a I was just laughing difference. to myself because I was thinking how I could use tar in my daily life. <laughs> like, please, please tar my emails, tar my text messages. hundred percent. hundred percent. And that, that exists. So there's, and there's other platforms that will do things like, you know, sometimes 
And this is more relevant for in-house lawyers. Sometimes an in-house lawyer will get a whistleblower complaint that is really vague. I know that Zelina and Michaela are up to no good. I think that they're committing a crime, but I don't know what it is because they're not letting me into their inner circle. And the in-house lawyer, even hearing that vague complaint, can't do nothing. You can't just sit on your hands. You've got to do something. And so you start looking at Zelina and Michaela's emails back and forth. And you're going, is there bad conduct in here? But you don't know what you're looking for. You can't just do it email by email because you guys send thousands of emails to each other every week. So there's a tool called Concept Cluster, which again, looks at the, the language used in the documents and it starts to put them into small piles based on similar content. So if you don't know how to even start your investigation because you don't know what issues you're looking for, concept clustering is a really nice uh, tool to streamline that process and get you sort of started on the right foot, on the right trajectory. And then I'll say last, there's obviously a ton of conversation right now around chat GPT and GPT-3 and its use case for the legal industry. And, you know, I'll tell you, we're, we're recording this in February 2023. Um, chat GPT and, and GPT-3 more generally is fairly new to the public discourse. People in, in the AI world have been following it's it for a long time. But, <laughs> <laughs> but to lay people, it's fairly new into the legal industry. It's fairly new discourse. It was only, you know, when it was front page of the Wall Street Journal three weeks ago that lawyers started paying attention. So there's a lot of conversation around that. Um, there's also a lot of skepticism about its role in legal because in some ways the technology is intended to provide answers to questions. Um, you know, it's really about, it's generative AI, it's about generating content, and it's really, really impressive at doing that. But it's not for accuracy of content because you get back to this whole idea of training bias. It's been trained on a certain data set. It only has that data set to access for answers, and it's not a fully comprehensive data set, and there's no sort of truth grades to the information within that data set that it will regularly provide incorrect answers because it's not intended to be uh, an answering tool. It's a content generation tool. And so there is fear in the legal industry about how it will impact things. I think that fear is probably um, misdirected. I think it's going to take some time, but the underlying AI involved could have a lot of really powerful, meaningful impact on the legal Yeah. I, and I think it also just depends on how you use it, right? So we talked about some of the TransPerfect products. We talked about just some products that are just being built out right now. How do you feel those two will blend in the next five years? We have a corporate culture and, and even using the words corporate culture might sound cheesy to some people, but but I believe in it. And this comes directly from our CEO. He says over and over again, if you're going to be cannibalized by technology, cannibalize yourself. Meaning, if there's a way to provide better service, better value to your client by introducing more advanced technology, even if it reduces your short-term revenue, you better proactively bring it to your client yourself because if you don't, your competitor will and that client won't be a client for the long term, right? And we embrace that. So we are constantly looking at new innovations, new tools, new workflows 
that we can build or adopt or integrate to bring to our clients to really, at the end of the day, in the short term, reduce their spend with us so that we've got these great long-term clients because there's no question over the value that we provide. So I think that all of these advancements and and frankly, some of their advancements that our competitors come out with first and I look at it and I go, this is great. This is great for the industry. And sure, I wish that we came up with it first, but that's okay because we'll be second or third or fourth or whatever it will be in six months or a year or two years down the line. No one's going to remember who brought it first. It's just a question of who does it better. So Dan, we have this word association that we've been asking all of the guests to participate in. So I'll say a word and then you say the first word that comes to mind. I mean, you know, sometimes you have to use two or three words. Um, And I just want to hear the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Ready? I'm ready. Data. Big. Law firms. Old-fashioned. AI. Potential. Paralegal. Key players. Automation. Support it. Good. That was good. If people want to learn a little bit about you, where to find you, I'm sure somebody's going to want to pick your brain, um, how can they find you? I'm on LinkedIn. That's the best way. I'm not a big Twitter, Instagram content publisher, so probably less social media and more good old-fashioned email and phone calls. Um, Since you said you are a traditional person, um, are there any trade shows or any events happening that you'll be at? Yep. So we have um, Legal Week 2023 is coming up in New York City. Uh, I think it's March 20th week. Um, so that's a big, big trade show in our in our industry. And then also in April, on April 20th in London, TransPerfect Legal is actually hosting our own conference specifically on antitrust and competition issues. And a lot of what we'll be talking about is how legal technology can help the process of streamlining those types of projects because they tend to be large data sets, accelerated timelines, really historically have been challenging to a lot of law firms. Um, And legal technology really improves that tremendously. So those are the two big things we have coming up. There's no doubt technology scares people, but whether you like it or not, it is shaping the future of the legal profession. These developments and trends will continue to improve efficiency, reduce costs, and enhance one's ability to serve clients. Of course, while AI and technology makes our lives easier, there are some things that will always require human interaction, especially in the legal field. We hope this episode provided you with some insight. And if you have no idea what we were talking about, maybe it sparked your interest. Thank you for tuning in. And until next time. If you made it to the end of this episode, thank you for listening. Make sure you hit the like button and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at nextpodcast at transperfect.com or visit our website at nextpodcast.transperfect.com. Support for this podcast comes from Transperfect, a family of companies providing language and technology solutions for global business. 